Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. passage today is Acts chapter 17. So yeah, starting at verse uh, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of a man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, them, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We are in the throes of a two-part mini-series here, if you want to call it that. Last week and this week, we're going to wrap it up. Although we're, we're doing a bigger series through the book of Acts. Uh, we're calling it To the Ends of the Earth. But last week, Dan took us through the first half of this chapter that we just read there, that Mitch just read out for us, Acts 17. Uh, and we're calling this mini-series Gospel and Culture, so we're going to land that plane today. And to kick us off, I want to tell you about a time when I went to... I was living in the UK um, at Oxford with my wife, and we had a baby in the middle of it all. And I got asked to go speak at a little village just a little bit southeast of Oxford. And I got asked to go speak on the subject of God and science. And so I got in the car, my wife Julie came with me, and another friend who is a PhD in physics, he's a very smart guy from uh, Singapore. We drove down to this little village, got out at this, um, this building, and I didn't know who I was speaking to, I just knew that there was this event and I got asked to go speak. And I basically, if, if pressing the memory of anyone here who happened to be at the old building in 2019 where I gave a talk on God and science, <laughs> I repackaged that talk into a 20-minute version and just went for it. And for some silly reason, halfway through that talk, I remember looking at everyone in the, the congregation, the crowd, and I said, let's face it, most of us aren't PhD-trained scientists. Anyway, during the q and I started getting some very scientific questions. <laughs> and I just said, can I just get a raise of hands in this room? Who happens to be like, in, the, in the field of science? Uh, and we did the math. It was more than 70% of the hands in the room went up. And I said, of those who are like... PhD trained, and all the hands stayed up. We had ex-Reading, ex-Cambridge, ex-Oxford professors. Um, we had some tutors there. And here is this bumbling kid from Gunnada uh, talking to them about God and science. The coolest thing about that story was some of what we were talking about there just stood up. It, it withstood the, um, the kind of questions that were coming at us in terms of how this makes sense from a Christian point of view. What can I say? I think God loves to use the weak things to confound the strong. And so what we're doing today is, as Michelle read out, we're looking at a man, not David, thankfully, we're looking at another man named the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to stand up, not at Oxford, 
but at a place called the Areopagus in Athens. And he's going to go against the intellectual giants of his day. Um, again, last week, Dan did a cracking good job setting this up for us. And he showed basically in the first half of this um, chapter that there are three different places with three different responses. So we had jealousy in Thessalonica. We'll look at a map in a moment. We had eagerness in Berea. So Paul's just doing this journey. Jealousy in a place called Thessalonica. Uh, eagerness in Berea. And then by the time we get to Athens, which is where we are today, we saw curiosity. And again, by the end of Dan's message, there was kind of a cliffhanger uh, expectation for what was Paul going to be saying to these curious Athenians. That's where we pick up today in verse 22. And we read there, uh, verse 22, that Paul stood up, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, addressing the men of Athens. Now, this picture, it's really quite striking. It's been the inspiration for many artists throughout the centuries. This one is from 1515 in the High Renaissance era by a painter named Raphael. This is Paul in the Areopagus from a very European-centric kind of point of view. And this place, Athens, between Rome itself in the Roman Empire, between Rome and Athens, these are the two cultural epicenters of the entire empire. And if you really want to split hairs, Athens was the intellectual capital of the place. Basically, new ideas that were formed, they were packaged there in Athens, and they flowed out to the rest of the empire. So the picture here is much more impressive than just an Oxford. It's basically Oxford, Cambridge, and all of the Ivy League schools rolled up into one. It was the summit of Greco-Roman intelligentsia, and it was literally a summit. Um, this place, the Areopagus, there's a relatively modern photo of it today. Uh, it was a hill. The name Areopagus actually comes from two words. The Greek god Ares, the god of war, and Pagos, meaning hill. So, hill of Ares, Ares Hill. Now, we've said this before, but basically, the Romans, when they came in and took over the, the Greek empire that was established or consolidated by Alexander the Great, uh, they basically took all of Greek culture, language, and the gods and just repackaged it and, and named them after you know, their own particular traditions. So the Greek god Ares, they renamed Mars. Hence, sometimes this Areopagus is known as Mars Hill. But remember, this is not where Paul actually wanted to be, if you can squint and maybe see that. Basically, you recall... Earlier on, back with Tony in Acts chapter 16, Paul was cruising along that top arc, uh, and when he gets to Troas, he really wanted to go into Asia Minor and share the gospel there, but you remember there was the big stop. He had that, um, that vision, that, that, that holy move of the Holy Spirit that said, you're not allowed to come through here, and then he has this vision of the man from Macedonia in Greece saying, come over here. So Paul and Silas and Timothy... They get on a boat and they go across that little bit of water there up the top known as the Aegean Sea and they land at Philippi and as I think it was Tony as well explored with us, they started to journey through there ministering and preaching and teaching the gospel. From there they came through Thessalonica as I shared, uh, Dan spoke with us last week and then Berea and then right down to Athens. But it was in Berea that Silas and Timothy stayed put. So that's key. By the time Paul gets to you are here in Athens, he's all alone. Okay? Now, here's a question for you. You rock up as a foreigner to Athens. What are you going to do as a lone tourist waiting for your buddies to rock up? What's that? Starbucks. Yep, Starbucks. You probably cruise around, check out the local sites, try some local cuisine. That's basically what Paul does. He basically goes to Starbucks, and as he's walking around the marketplace, he gets triggered. And Dan was sharing with us last week, it, it, the word in the Greek for him um, being bothered here, it's kind of like getting, Dan used the analogy of getting glass stuck in your foot. It just agitated him. It provoked him. So he's doing his Starbucks run, and then he's like, wait a second, I need to speak to somebody about this. And so Paul starts doing what he does best. He starts speaking the gospel, first in the synagogue, then in the marketplace, 
And then, as we saw in uh, verse 19, it was when he was in this marketplace that these guys known as the Epicureans and the Stoics, philosophers, two different philosophical schools, um, they said, hey mate, we want you to come with us because we want to hear more about this. And that leads us to our text today. These philosophers in the marketplace are the ones that took Paul to the Areopagus. But it's not exactly clear if we should take that to mean that Paul was just, hey mate, you're really interesting, do you want to come hang out with us and, and we want to hear more? Or if they were like, dude, you don't have a choice in this, you need to come with us now and you need to explain yourself. It's not quite clear which one it was. Um, I tend to think it's probably not quite an arrest, but more a, a formal kind of inquiry or hearing that he doesn't have a choice, he's obliged to go along with by the local elites in that place. So that's the picture here. Paul's this lone tourist, and now he's kind of getting pressured to come and explain himself to the tip of the intellectual sword in the entire Roman Empire. But what was Paul doing wrong to get requested to come up to the Areopagus? What was he saying around Starbucks to get the attention of the local elites? Well, verse 18, Dan took us through some of this. He was called a babbler, which basically is just a, a mockery. It's like a criticism. It's just having a go at his character. So there's not much in that. But then it says, others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now, that might sound a little odd to our ears, but if you know your classical history, this accusation against Paul was the exact same accusation that was leveled against Socrates some 450 years earlier in the exact same city of Athens. And anyone who knows what happened to Socrates knows that this is a pretty serious accusation for the Greeks. Socrates was found guilty for corrupting the youth, for disrupting the establishment of his day, and for that, he got given a little cocktail of hemlock, a very poisonous plant, and he had to drink it, and he was killed. So this was a pretty tense situation for Paul. I want you to try and feel that a little bit. Again, you're all alone in a foreign, strange place without your friends. Your heart rate's probably jacked. As you, I think Paul probably knew this history of Socrates. And here he is getting taken up the mountain. So Paul then begins this response. And the key here is not just an interesting history tour with Socrates. The key here for all of us today I want us to see that this accusation of preaching foreign divinities, it's, it's what shapes everything Paul now has to say in this speech. So that leads to this first question that I want to ask us all here. What does the word foreign mean? Well, it means, amongst other things, strange, characteristic of somewhere else, unfamiliar, unknown. You know, what did you do on the weekend? Uh, I went to church. Oh, what did you do at church? Um, sang some songs, listened to some guy talk about this word, the Bible. What did you sing about? What did you hear about in the Bible? God? <laughs> Who? See, foreign to so many of our friends today, right? So again, this accusation might sound odd at first, but I submit to you that it's actually one that many of us are quite familiar with today. I was chatting with a friend here today uh, named Nick. He went on an assignment recently with our Defence Force, and he was sitting there chatting away with his buddies, and some of them asked him about his Christianity. Um, Nick said I could share this with everyone today. So Nick's there uh, defending and explaining what he believes as a Christian. And one of the guys actually said to him, mate, this just seems so foreign, like so strange. I'm sorry, I just don't get it. How do we respond to that kind of an accusation? And I won't get poor Nick to stand up here and, and take over from this point, but go have a chat to him. It's a ripping good conversation that he had. How do we respond to this accusation? I want to suggest you build a bridge. You build a bridge to connect where you are and what you believe to where they are and what they believe. But how do we do that, right? Gospel and Culture, Part 2. If you're taking notes, this is our outline, and don't worry, I know that's a long introduction, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Blueprints, 
This is like the battle plan. Step one, step two, step three. We're going to go through these in turn. So first, blueprints. This is the plan for how we go about building the bridge. Paul is at the Areopagus. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to follow along here. Acts 17, starting at verse 22. Paul is at the Areopagus. He's there to defend himself against this accusation of preaching foreign divinities. Now, he doesn't outline his blueprints to the team, right? He's not there saying, oh, this is my plan now for how I'm going to respond to you. Uh, But we see it immediately here in the first couple of verses. Take a look, for example, at verse 22. We read, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, do you see what Paul has just done in one masterful sentence? He has both owned the accusation that's raised against him and completely discredited it at the same time. Here's a Dave Dean paraphrase. All right, men of Athens, so I'm here because you've just charged me of preaching foreign divinities. What of it? You guys worship foreign divinities, so who's the greater fool here, the preacher or the ones bowing down at the altars? You are accusing me of something that you guys literally worship. It's like Paul's just, you know, welcome, I'm this guy from a long dead empire in the backwater of the known world, and uh, you just got served. (laughs) He just completely owns the intellectual elite of his day in one opening statement. But Paul's not just having a go here. He's actually doing something much more sophisticated. And one of the ways we can describe this is by this phrase, subversive fulfillment. And I'm breaking all the preaching rules here by getting a little clunky with you and introducing these kind of words. But it's so cool. I've been trying to do this for the last year in my preaching. So I'm going to tell you what it is so that we can actually um, equip ourselves uh, for the next time we find ourselves sitting around a, a coffee table talking to people about the foreign ideas that we believe as Christians. And this is the blueprint, the plan, the strategy for how we're going to build the bridge, okay? Subversive fulfillment. What does that mean? Glad you asked. If you're listening really closely to Dan's talk last week, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, jump online and have a listen. But Dan was hinting at this idea of subversive fulfillment all throughout his talk. Um, Basically, Dan said a couple of things. We need to guard against the twin tendencies of, on the one hand, as we're sharing the gospel with our culture, on the one hand, adapting the gospel to our culture in such a way that seems so foreign to them, so unrelatably different and completely legalistic, like mandating, yeah, everyone, if you want to come to my church, you all better suit up, wear a black tie and shoes, and and, uh, we don't sing songs, we just kind of listen to reading or something like that. That would probably be a stumbling block for some people because it would seem so distant and so stale and remote for them. So, as Dan was saying, we shouldn't, um, you know, under-adapt our gospel presentation and make it difficult for the culture. But on the other side, there is this equal and opposite tendency of over-adapting in our gospel presentation by, by sharing the gospel in such a way that it's so unrecognizably the same as the culture. And take, for example, the moral norms of things like marriage or sexuality and identity and all of the rest. Subversive fulfillment is one way of describing what I think is the middle road between these two equal and opposite unhelpful extremes. The phrase comes from a hugely helpful book by a guy named Daniel Strange. And in simple terms, this is what it is. Subversive fulfillment means finding what is common in our beliefs and culture and then showing people how Jesus fulfills and transforms that in surprising ways. Let me read that again. Subversive fulfillment means finding what is common in our beliefs as Christians and the culture, so finding a point of contact, and then showing our friends how Jesus transforms what we have in common in surprising ways. 
I like to think of subversive fulfillment in two words. Connection and challenge. It's all about sharing the gospel in a way that connects with our culture, with something that's going on, but also in a way that while you've connected with it, you then kind of do something with it and you challenge the culture at the same time. I think that's what Paul is doing here. That's his blueprint for how to build an evangelistic bridge to close the gap. I mean, remember who these people are that Paul is talking to, right? Verse 18. The Epicureans, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. But look at how Paul... Two very, very different Greek schools of philosophy here. But look at how Paul addresses them in his opening. As one, men of Athens. Why does he do that? I think because he's found a common point of connection for both of these very different schools of thinkers, and he's addressing them as one in that thing that he's connected with them in. Namely, their religious affiliations. Again, these two schools are quite different, and just to quickly survey their differences, with respect to reality, the Epicureans believed that reality was made of these tiny little particles called atoms. They kind of paved the way for later science in that respect. They were clearly onto something. Uh, But they believed that atoms just swirled randomly and chaotically, and there was no rhyme or reason to reality at all. And so as a consequence of their physics of the world, or their metaphysics, how they understood the nature of reality, they then derived an ethic that said there's basically no meaning to all of this movement, so go out there and make up your own meaning. Try and find tranquility for yourself and live as happy as you can, and when suffering comes, just try and get away from it. The Stoics, by contrast, did believe in the material stuff of this world, but not that it was all swirling chaotically, but that it was like clockwork, mechanistic, moving with some impersonal, forceful kind of direction, and you just need to salute and execute and get on with life, and if life throws you um, lemons, then you just get hit with them and pretend like it didn't hurt. (laughs) None of this making lemonade stuff, okay? Um, they just basically said, this is reality. You know, sometimes we hear the phrase today, oh, they're so stoic, it's like suppression of emotion. So that was the fundamental difference in reality between both the Epicureans and the Stoics. But despite these differences, Paul addresses them as one men of Athens. Why? Because he's connecting with the fact that they're both very religious. That's his phrase here in verse 22. A phrase which is actually one word in the Greek that basically means very superstitious, kind of fearful. So Paul connects with this common religious fear that the men of Athens had, and it's at that point that he gets to work in building this bridge. So despite the differences that we have with people in our culture as Christians today, I think we need to work hard to find points of connection so that we have some ground on which to then share what it is that we believe. And there are many points of connection that we can find today. I mean, you and I live in this really peculiar moment of history where so many of our cultural assumptions and values are actually deeply, deeply Christian. And what makes this peculiar is that, for the most part, Christianity is either misunderstood or condemned by our culture. As G.K. Chesterton once quipped, The modern world is full of old Christian virtues gone mad because we've just amputated and isolated them from God. And this makes for a strange, sometimes amusing, but frankly, ultimately sad situation in which our culture increasingly today sets itself up in opposition to Christianity, yet it does so in a way that is distinctively Christian. (laughs) If you want to read a book on this, that big, six... Uh, no, north of 600 pages, Tom Holland, Dominion, it's very, very good. Um, He explores this in masterful detail. But just take the idea of this cultural idea of justice. We all agree that justice is an important thing today, right? But our culture, and this is provocative, I'm sorry, please, this is an open invitation to come chat with me after if you're not picking up what I'm putting down. But in our culture today, I would argue that we don't actually have a basis for what we mean by this word justice. No justifier for our justice. No righteousness for what we call human rights. And so that is why today we have so much cultural warring out there, because who's right and who's wrong, and who's just and who's unjust. 
That's why we argue so much about stuff today. We all have a Christian expectation of justice and rights, but we have no Christ to ground it. Or take the concern for equality. Again, who among us wouldn't say that all people deserve a fair crack at life? That's literally like an Aussie slogan or something, you know, give everyone a fair go. Who among us wouldn't believe that everyone deserves a fair go, regardless of their colour, their caste, their class, their creed or their code? But how do we achieve that? Like, how do we make sure that we give everyone a fair go? What makes us all equal as a species, in other words? What is the basis of our equality? We talk so much about having community today and inclusion today, but honestly, at the same time, we're destroying that because we're emphasizing the individual at the, ex at the expense of community all the time. We have a Christian idea of inherent dignity in who people are, but we've rejected the God in whose image we are all made. So there's like individual at the expense of the greater collective. What about love? All you need is love, the Beatles have told us. But what is love? Well, you, you, you hear our slogans, love is love, right? What does that mean? I actually did some hard reading on this, and the idea of that slogan is to suggest that it is devoid of meaning, and that's the whole point, because it's indeterminate. You can't tell anyone what love is. Love is love. It is whatever they want to label it as. So we've been told by the Beatles, all you need is love, and yet we've been told at the same time by our culture, we don't know what love is. So we've been told that we need something, but we don't know what it is. That's not a new message, guys. It's Acts 17, 23. It's an altar to an unknown God. You see, bridge the gap by helping people to see, whether it's justice, equality, or love, helping people to see the unknown through what they know. Does that make sense? The unknown gods in our culture. Let me give you an example of this, and I know that I'm beating the example of horses, but this is a real one. I was, mm, it was about April, May this year. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I came into the office at work, and the head of the office there, um, I was standing near the photocopier. He walked in, he looked white as a ghost. Uh, and he was walking up to me, and I said, are you okay? And he said, no. And I said, do you want to go have a talk? And he said, yes. So I went into his office, we sat down, and I said, what's up? And he just said, I think I'm dying. Now, I've known this guy for, for literally a decade. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I just came back from the hospital. They told me about my heart. Um, he's, he has a heart condition, and it's not good. He wasn't immediately dying, but he was clearly shaken at the time, right? And I'm sitting there, and he's just out, like letting it all go towards me. Um, and he then said, "But you know, I've been, I've served all over the world. You know, he was in the Scottish Navy for a long time." And he basically said, "I remember when I was diffusing these sub uh, submarine mines, and people were like, you're crazy for doing that." And he's like, "Well, if I die, I die. Like literally, I won't know about it." By the way, that was actually nearly verbatim an Epicurean view of death. But anyway, um, you know. If, when you're alive, you're not dead, so that's great. And when you're dead, you're not alive to know about it, so who cares, whatever. Um, and he said, so basically, if I die, I die, that's it. And I said, oh, I won't tell you his name, but I said, is that really all? And he just kind of looked at me. And I'm praying like crazy, oh, what do I say here? Like, um, and then I thought, I'll just call him Frank. Frank, you have mentored me for the better part of a decade in terms of program management. And this thing that you always shared with me was how relationships matter the most. It's not about the, the profit margin, it's, the, it's about the pulse in the person that matters the most. If you want to get a good outcome in your program, you treat people like people. You've taught me that. Relationships are where it's at. Uh, and you know, it's interesting that when we're on the threshold of death, potentially, we're always thinking about relationships and what matters the most and what other people will think. Um, you know that I'm a Christian. You know that my wife and I, Julie, we go to a church in town. And for us, we just take that idea of a relationship to another level and believe that all of our relationships matter the way they do because ultimately a relationship with God matters the most. And he actually does have something to say about what comes next. And he just looked at me and goes, okay. Anyway, so, uh, and moved on. <laughs> 
I have no idea what's come of that conversation. The point is we found a point of connection and we went with it. My colleague knew about relationships and that was where we connected but also challenged gently. Right? This is not a demo job. We don't all need to get Paul at the Areopagus here. Be shrewd and sensitive and careful. Connection, challenge, subversive fulfillment. Paul's blueprint for evangelistic bridge building. But we're in, a real treat, in for a real treat here because it's not just a plan that he's sharing with us. Now we get to see him do it in action. So next here, God the Creator. This is his step number one. And your steps may look different in your conversations, right? This is just Paul picking up what his culture then was putting down. Look at verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, so Paul is accused of preaching foreign divinities. We know his blueprint. He gets to work. Why is this his first step? Why doesn't he start, for example, clarifying who Jesus is? Because the original accusation about preaching foreign divinities, they were actually saying that they were preaching two gods, the God, this Jesus God, and also the resurrection, they believed that was another God. So clearly they were confused. Why wouldn't Paul enter in at that point and say, let me just clarify for you, when I say Jesus, this is what I mean? It's probably what I would do. He doesn't do that. He goes right back to the beginning. Why? Because the Athenians have no clue about Christ. That was a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. This is, this is a completely pagan culture. They had no category for this promised anointed one, so he doesn't use jargon that they wouldn't get. He did when he was at the, the synagogue the other week, as Dan showed us. But not here. He goes to something that they're familiar with. He connects with them in nature. And believe you me, the Greeks had some views on nature. But he is doing more than just that. He's now proposing this unknown God in such a way that connects with everything. Did you look at these inclusive terms here? Everything. All mankind. God is connected to everything and to all mankind. Why? Because that's what creators are. They're connected by virtue of being the creator. right? Paul is closing the gap. This God seems so distant. Well, actually, no, he's the creator of you. right? He's closing the gap. Connection and challenge. And here is the challenge by the way. For the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers alike, their different views of reality, as we've mentioned, they both held to this prevailing Greek idea that the material stuff of this world, dirt, rock, trees, whatever, just always was. Well, not in that form, but the the material stuff that made them up just always was. Eternally existed. There was no beginning out of nothing of the material stuff in this world. So by calling God the Creator... Paul is challenging the Greek status quo in a massive way. Remember the audience, tip of the intellectual sword. He is challenging them with a very distinctive Judeo-Christian idea that the universe had a beginning. And as soon as you introduce the idea of a beginning, you open up all sorts of new possibilities. And you shut a lot of others down at the same time. I mean, if the universe and everything in it has a beginning, and that's addressed, it has direction, a purpose in why it was created. That means that, amongst other things, you and I are recipients of something called creation. We receive our existence like a gift, which should, by the way, give us something called gratitude. This is really quite profound. You see, in pagan cultures in the first century, like Athens, or even today, if you go overseas, and I know I've got many former missionaries here, or Tony's still cracking on overseas, doing his work. If you go to certain cultures and places overseas, you'll see this. Idol worship never gives, it always takes. I remember walking around the streets of Indonesia, and you see this everywhere. You have to jump over it as you go. These little offerings where people who really don't have much are putting all that they have out into these little baskets, these little food offerings, these little bits of money, Little incense sticks to the gods. I remember seeing a, a picture of the rat god in India. There's there a montage of pictures showing, you know, in one photo, different nations. And this one happened to go to India, and it was in the rat temple, where all of these rats are surrounding this huge bowl, 
drinking at milk. Imagine what that would sound like. Um, and there is this little baby just sitting off to the side looking. How's that for a contrast? Giving at the great cost to yourself because these gods need stuff from you. They always need to be attended to. They always need to be appeased. And by the way, you might say, well, that's crazy over there in India or over there in Indonesia. Mm -mm. We do that here today. We just call it career. We just call it my self-esteem. We just call it money. We just call it fill in the blank to fill up your own insecurity or wherever it is that you're looking for, whatever desire it is, whatever it is that we value. How much is enough? A little bit more. Always. A little bit more. That's not Christianity. The Creator God is not served by human hands as though He were in need. Do you see what Paul's saying to these people? He doesn't need anything because He's the giver of everything. He's above creation, but He's not alienated from creation. Sorry, Epicureans. He is not a part of creation, but He attends to creation. Sorry, Stoics. There's the challenge, right? So step one, Paul closes the gap with God the Creator. He connects with them in their culture in that they are looking for something, but he challenges them by showing them that what they're looking for is in all the wrong places. Step number two, God the Sustainer. Verse 26, look here. And he, this Creator God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Here again, we see Paul closing the gap, this time by suggesting not that God is the creator, but the sustainer of all creation. Again, look at the inclusive terms. Every nation. He's not far from each one of us. We are his offspring. You don't get less foreign than that. That's familial, that's family language, right? He's closing the gap. And look, Paul is really creative here. Like, take notes, by the way, if, if you're wanting to get some evangelistic tips. He quotes one of their own poets. He knows what's going on in the culture around him. He's aware of the things people are listening to and what they're reading or listening to back then. And he's like, look, paraphrasing, look you Athenians, you should have known this. You've got brilliant thinkers, brilliant philosophers, there's on to something here, but you're not really picking it up, are you? And again, we see this in our own day today. I think it's possible, just like Paul picking up on what these poets are saying, I think it's possible, I think I want to say this, to basically take any song or movie and see how it is a dim, how it is a dim reflection of the gospel. There's a fun homework exercise for you any movie or song, and see how it is a dim reflection of the gospel. Take, for example, my, one of my favorite movies, um, that quasi-pagan African ancestral worship saga known as The Lion King. I love it, by the way. Sorry, I was having a go. Um, but it's very, very interesting, the spirituality underneath this, and it's not uh, accidental. It was very intentional in the authors. When Scar rules the world, everyone starves. The land is cursed. There's no sunshine anymore. And Rafiki knows all of this. But he also knows that the son of the king is alive. And the son eventually returns. And he defeats Scar and his hyena hordes and he casts them down into that big pit of fire. And after it is finished, he then ascends the throne as his rightful place as king. And in the last scene, we see all is well, the sun is shining again. Go and have fun with this as you watch movies and listen to songs, by the way. But there's another thing in our culture that I want you to think about. Anzac Day. Once a year in this country of ours, people fellowship together to honour sacrifice that has allowed the life of others, that has allowed us to live in the peaceful place that we live there is a gospel message in that, isn't there? Connection. Expose the unknown through what is known. How do you worship this dead God sacrifice that's so alien? Literally, April 25, every day. Every, sorry, 
every April 25, every year. Connection. But also, look, there is challenge. Verse 26. God determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27. He is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Here, Paul is challenging specific Greek ideas about reality again. The world and everything in it is not random. Sorry, Epicureans. Nor is it fixed and determined. Sorry, Stoics. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He upholds all things by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3. From him to him, through him are all things. To God be the glory forever, Romans 11.36. Now, how God sustains all things in concert with human free will is a big, big subject. But let me just sketch out something of it here for us in the immediate chapters we've been looking at in the book of Acts. Remember back on our map, Paul wanted to go down into Asia, which, by the way, is kind of just above Ephesus there, in that whole region. He wanted to go down into Asia, but what stopped him? The Holy Spirit. Now, Paul could have done a Jonah at that point and hightailed it and ran away if he wanted to. He was free to do that, but he didn't. He didn't. He obeyed the Macedonian call. God set the path. Paul took the steps. And who did he meet along the way? Look at the top there. There's little sweet Lydia. She's wearing purple. He met Lydia in Philippi as she was out by the river. What was she doing there? Selling purple goods. She was in the material trade, right? So her business decisions, she was from Thyatira, her business decisions brought her across the path of Paul. But then we read in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention and she believed. In other words, God determined the allotted periods and boundaries of her dwelling that she should, in her free business choices, seek after God and find him. And that's exactly what she did. We'll take up there in Philippi again, the Philippian jailer. Paul, remember, was a Roman citizen. He could have appealed to his Roman citizenry and avoided the jail term altogether. But he didn't. Why? I suspect it was because he knew that God was going to do something. And God did just that. Remember this Philippian jailer. What was the jailer doing? Just doing his job, like Lydia. But it didn't take an earthquake for God to open the gates of Lydia's heart, but it did for the Philippian jailer. Why? Because everyone's different. And God doesn't override that. He works with us. And if he needs to bring something seismic about, (laughs) he'll do it. So pay attention to that in your own life as well. God meets us where we're at. Lydia, Philippian jailer, next week we're going to be meeting Priscilla and Aquila. We're going to see it all over again. They're doing business. They might think they're just doing their thing. But as we're going to see in the plans of God, their home becomes a hub for early gospel ministry in the church. This is how God works, right through the book of Acts, right through human history, right to the very choice of you coming to this building today and sitting in the very chairs that you're sitting in. It was your choice, but God has built the conditions for you to exercise that choice accordingly. God the sustainer. Step number three, God the rescuer. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, again, the accusation against Paul is that he's preaching foreign divinities. He's closed the gap by suggesting God's the creator, step one. He's closed the gap by suggesting God's the sustainer, step two. He does it again here by suggesting God is the rescuer. Again, one more time, look at the inclusive terms. All people, everywhere, the world, he has given assurance to all. Paul is closing the gap here, it's getting repetitive. But this time there's something different. It's as though the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers could tolerate the challenges Paul was leveling against their view of reality. You can almost imagine them stroking their, you know, 
beards musing at the metaphysics of it all, right? Oh, how interesting. But when you get to this point at the suggestion of God being a rescuer, people get up and laugh and mock and walk away. What's different? God the creator, God the sustainer, interesting ideas, but God the rescuer? Mm -mm. Now you're making me do something with the information you're telling me. Now it's getting real. Now it's getting personal. It's as though Paul is saying, it's not enough to sit there and stroke your beards, gentlemen, to play around with new ideas, which is what we saw, verse 21, these people like to do. You cannot be guilty if you're the product of change and mindless matter like the Epicureans believed. How convenient. You cannot be guilty if everything in this world is determined as the Stoics believe. Robots aren't guilty of anything. Even we know that. We don't criticize computers. But if there is a creator... If there is a sustainer, if you have been made with a purpose and you are positioned in this life to respond to that purpose and you don't, now there is moral responsibility on you. That's what Paul's saying here. But look in the middle of verse 30. He says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why now? What's happened? Paul tells us next verse, because a man whom God has appointed has been raised from the dead. And then the giggles start. Try and imagine this. Paul is in the midst of the Areopagus. These Greek philosophers are probably leaning in with interest, the, the, the intelligentsia, wondering where all this is going. He's been building this argument, building this argument. By the way, this is a summary of what he said. The Areopagus was a dialogue place. It was back and forth. This is a, a, a brief snapshot that we get in the writing of Luke here. Paul is building this case. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the rescuer. And oh, by the way, everyone, you can be sure of this. You can know that what I'm saying to you is true. You can take it to the bank because some guy rose from the dead. <laughs> and they're like, that is your landing statement. That's, that's what you're going to take to the bank, Paul. You want to put all of this marvelous stuff that you've just shared with us onto that awkward little foundation. The Greeks could have tolerated it if Paul had said something like, look, Look to the return of the robins in the trees. Look to the, look to the melting snow as the seasons change. Look to the movements in the celestial bodies in the starry heavens above. They could have tolerated that because of their particular Greco-Roman views of nature. He doesn't do any of that for them. He says, look to the distinctively supernatural claim that some guy who was dead rose back to life. The entire weight of his argument lands here on a supernatural claim of resurrection. And with that suggestion, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and others did join him who believed. What is it about the resurrection that stops conversations? What is it about the resurrection that divides people? Paul, you're wanting to build a bridge here, mate. Maybe that was a bridge too far. <laughs> I think Paul would say... It's the only bridge that goes far enough. Why do I think that? Because the resurrection is the ultimate act of subversive fulfillment. It connects and challenges with both the human head of reason and the heart of experience. How does the resurrection connect and challenge with the human head of reason? It's no secret that today... People laugh, just like the Athenians 2,000 years ago, at the claim of a man coming back from the dead. What do we do when that happens? We've seen Paul's blueprint. We've seen how he's done it. Now I want you guys to think about it. Now, let's do it together. What do we do when people laugh? We go back to our blueprint and think through what subversive fulfillment is. When people mock this idea, why are they mocking it? Because it's foreign to them, right? It's not natural. Dead people stay dead. That's the accusation. Let's get to work. Close the gap. How do you close that gap? If res and this is just one idea. You guys need to do it in your own ways. But if resurrection is laughable because that's not how nature works, then let's talk about how nature works. Take the stoic belief 
that all living things emerged from non-life. A lot of people who, who don't believe in God today still believe that. For example, we have one very popular book by a theoretical physicist called The Universe from Nothing that makes just this point. Now, as a Christian, right, I'm here today sharing with you all, I happen to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus as a part of God's plan for salvation, right? I do believe that. But to believe in a universe from nothing, that all life has emerged from non-life, is like believing in the virgin birth of the cosmos with the big difference that there's no virgin and there's no reason for it, right? I submit to you that to believe that takes a lot more faith than to believe that a carpenter from Nazareth walked out of a Jewish tomb. Or take the Epicurean belief that this universe and everything in it, including your life and mine, is just the chance movement of unguided atoms clashing one into another so that when you burp or when you murder somebody, it's on a physical level no different. Again, many people hold to that in one modified form or another today. Take one of Joe Rogan's much-loved, frequent podcast friends, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who once quipped, the universe is under no obligation to make any sense to you. But the more and more that we study our universe, the more we have come to see that it actually does not appear random at all. It is finely tuned to mind-boggling precision in order to sustain life. Take and I know you want to be doing this today on a Sunday afternoon, take the cosmological constant, for example, which scientists use to measure the expansion rate of the universe. Just hold on, please. If that had been, whatever that thing is, if it had been a tiny bit bigger, then the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. This is the, this is the beginning of the universe, and that's Earth like at T time T1 now. If that, had, if that constant, the rate of expansion, had been a tiny little bit bigger, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. A uh, tiny little bit smaller would have accelerated way off. Either way, if you varied it down or up, no life, no earth, no you, no me. How precise are we talking here in terms of variation? Well, it's been estimated that the chance of it being just right for producing life as we know it is about 1 in 10 to the power of 53. That's 1 divided by 10 followed by 53 zeros. It's hard to understand what that number even means, so we get interesting analogies like this from a philosopher who's done some of the probability, and he says, Robert Collins, that's analogous to having a dartboard as big as the observable universe, right? With the bullseye the same size as a regular dartboard and asking somebody to sit back and throw a dart and hit the bullseye, and oh, by the way, that person's also blind. That's the kind of probabilities we're talking about here, guys. Now, if you're willing to go that far, and believe those odds, then I submit to you that you do believe in miracles. So come on, take the next step. People have done the math here with their probability calculus and determined that it is more probable that the resurrection occurred than that. Because that requires you to believe that all life came from non-life, whereas the resurrection only requires you to believe that one non-living man came back alive again. You see, when Christians say we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's not that we're adding one more weird thing to our worldview. No, resurrection, life from the dead, is the lens through which we view the world because the fact that any of us are standing or sitting here today where we are is in fact a kind of life from the dead miracle. Smell what I'm stepping in, right? Do you see how intellectually subversive this is? People laugh at the resurrection because they think it's nonsense. Whereas I think it's the only thing that makes sense of a world that would otherwise be nonsense. That's why the resurrection is not a bridge too far. God is the creator, God is the sustainer, and you can be assured of these things, Paul says, because God is the rescuer in a man who rose from the dead. The resurrection makes known what is otherwise unknown. And at the end of the day, that's challenging for people. Yes, intellectually. But I think more than that, here, in the heart. And this is how I think the resurrection ultimately connects to the human heart. To believe in the resurrection is to go all in. There's no halfway about it. Can't be a little bit pregnant. Many of the mamas here know that. You can't be a little bit of a bachelor. You can't believe in a little bit of the resurrection. It either happened or it didn't. And if it did happen and you believe it, you're all in. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Years ago, 
That is me. No, it's not me. Years ago, I was doing some sweet jumps. Actually, I wasn't. I, wasn't even, I was just on the ground and I slipped. But I was doing some, some... I thought it was cool dirt bike riding. Second day of uni, I should have been in class and I wasn't. So there I was riding my dirt bikes out at Warner's Bay in, a, in the bushland. And I was going around a corner and I slipped off. And I did some tumbles down in the middle of this quarry. And ended up breaking my ulna and my radius in nine places. And up, up until that point in my life, I'd never really seriously broken a bone in my body, but I'm looking at my wrist, and it was, it was like that, and compressed about four centimetres. And part of my head was like a bit spinny, and I thought, oh, maybe it's just dislocated. <laughs> maybe I could move it back into place. And you know how I'm like, I'm thinking right now, I'm going to move my arm like a wave, right? I'm not really thinking about it, I just said I'm doing it, and I'm doing it. There's something going on, brain-hand connection. I was trying to do that. I'm like, I'll just move my hand. It just, just was not working. It just would not move. I could will all I wanted to, and I could not make the, the limb move. It was completely limp. Now, if that is true in life with a broken bone, how much more in death where there is no will, to all, uh, no will at all? You see, that's what the resurrection does. It assumes a death, right? No death, no resurrection. And because there's no coming back from the dead, and by the way, last time I checked, the death rate was still one per one, so this is happening, guys. Because dead people stay dead, resurrection, by its very nature, demands intervention, and therefore it beckons belief in a rescuer. But that's the point at which people's eyes start to roll, because that makes no sense to them, right? And I'll submit to you that that is probably for the most part, a cover for what's really going on in here. And I say that not because I presume to know the heart of anyone, but because I know my own heart. To believe in the resurrection is incredibly humbling because it requires you to come to the end of yourself in the recognition that you need rescuing. That's why the resurrection is the ultimate act of subversive fulfillment. It connects and challenges with the head and the heart of every human being in the belief that the only way out is by a miraculous intervention of one who has been raised from the dead because those people tend to know the way out. What must I do to be saved? Asked the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, was the reply. Paul lands with the resurrection here because this is what beckons belief. And the sad irony here in Acts chapter 17, and for so many of our friends who laugh, is that those who mock Paul, they did that because they thought, what intelligent person would seriously believe this? And then no more than 200 years later, Christianity swept the entire Roman Empire, and pretty much every single intelligent person believed it. You see, I don't think this is so much a matter of the head as it is the heart. Christianity is not against reason, right? Don't, don't hear me saying that. But it goes beyond reason to this thing. Today my wrist bears a scar that reminds me of the moment in my life when I needed intervention, somebody from the outside to step in. Jesus Christ still to this day bears scars on his hands and his feet to remind us that we all need to be rescued. And I don't know about you, but even me as a Christian, I need to be reminded of that daily. I honestly, in my own insecurities and my shame, find it hard to go all in. There's always parts of me that are holding back, whether that's in my relationship to God, my relationship to Julie, my children, my friendships. But his scars remind me, are a testament to me that I must, because that's exactly what he did for me. So, Gospel and Culture, part two. We say, lest we forget to honor the dead on Anzac Day. Jesus is alive. How much more should we remember and honor him, hey? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Acts chapter 17. We thank you for these preserved words of the Apostle Paul, for his courage in standing in the face of giants, uh, for the way that you used him, a man who by his own profession was a man weak in speech, um, and nothing physically imposing at all. And yet, you just upended the Roman establishment <laughs> with him. And not only with him, but with your saints in the early church 
who through their silent witness went to the went to the arenas and gave their lives as a testament for their belief. Father, you have a way of using the weak to confound the strong. And that requires humility on the part of the weak and faith in you, the one who is strong. So I just ask, Lord, for everyone here, whether we're believers or not, that we would have this uh, subversive fulfillment awakening in our own lives, repeatedly, in bringing us to the cross perhaps for the first time, and then repeatedly keeping us at the cross for all time, as we marvel at who you are, God become man, emptying all of your divine rights, submitting not only to humanity, your creation, but beyond that to our problems in death, and then through that great subversive act, rising again to new life, calling us to be where you are by the hand that has been there and knows the way out. Father, may we all hold that hand of your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we're sitting here in this room, recognizing that you are the creator, sustainer, rescuer of all, it's not a coincidence that we're here. It's not a coincidence that we've got the thoughts going on in our thoughts right now that we have the feelings, whatever they are, Father, you, are, you, you have created this environment. And we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now in, in the quiet of our own hearts and tell us what we need to hear. And if that means a conversation with somebody, or if that means a prayer with you in private, may it be done before the sun goes down tonight, I ask. Lord, we love you and we thank you again for this gospel that meets us where we're at but does not keep us the same. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.